missions, mission work, and even charity work in a bad economy is often very hard or difficult. When you talk to mission agencies or uh, folks who have to raise support for missions, they'll tell you when the economy is bad or people begin to fear that, that we're going to have a bad or hard time economically, mission support begins to drop. And the reality is in most of our lives, when things kind of get tight, charity and even, believe it or not, missions is the first thing we cut. And tragically, tragically, in a lot of churches, when times get hard, churches will look around and the missions, the, the stuff they do for missions is kind of the last thing on the list and it's usually the first thing to cut back. We have to protect ourselves and we got to be committed to what happens here first and missions gets cut. And that's exactly what was going on in Nehemiah chapter 5. But when we get to chapter 5, it wasn't inflation that Nehemiah was worried about. Wasn't worried about gas prices. But as we'll see, he does propose a debt reduction act. With the focus in Judah, all throughout Judah, all of the people of God... The focus had become rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. And that took everybody's effort. So people had to walk away from their fields. They had to walk away from their families. And they had to begin to, to work on the wall. And there was a food shortage. And then a drought. And then a famine. And on top of this, the Persian king required a tax. You see, the Babylonians, they held their enemies captive. They took them away to foreign lands, and they taught them about their gods, and they forced them to worship their gods. But the Persians and the king that we've talked about so far, Artaxerxes, he allowed the Jews to live in their land. He even allowed religious freedom for them. But he demanded a steep and hard tax. And when we get to Nehemiah chapter 5, all of these things come due. The people don't have any food, and they can't pay their taxes. And this mission trip by this cupbearer from Persia is in jeopardy. Remember in chapter 1, Nehemiah hears about the wall in Jerusalem. It's still dilapidated. The people of God, they have returned from exile, and they began to, to build up Jerusalem. In 45, uh, 445 B.C., Nehemiah has some friends come visit him in Persia as he's working for the king there. And they tell him, yeah, Jerusalem is still in ruins, I know you've heard of the return. I know, I know you've heard news that things seem to be going well. But the enemies of God are even attacking Jerusalem. And it broke Nehemiah's heart. And he risked his life and he went before King Artaxerxes and he asked if he could go rebuild the wall. And almost miraculously, Artaxerxes said, sure you can go and we will pay for it. The Persian government will pay for this mission trip back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And we see in chapter 2 as Nehemiah goes into Jerusalem, immediately he is met with opposition that he shouts down. He's reminding himself of the promises of God. And then he orders 
the work around the city some 2.5 miles, two and a half miles around the city with hundreds and hundreds of workers. Nehemiah is in charge of all of that. And the work seems to be going well. And yet the enemies of God begin to close in again. Their power is being taken away. Jerusalem is being guarded. Jerusalem, the the wall is going up. And they begin to threaten to come in and take over. And Nehemiah basically has to turn Jerusalem into an army base. Folks are doing their work, but they're carrying their swords and shields with them. And then again, in chapter 5, there's another obstacle. And yet this has to do with economics. It has to do with finances. It has to do with oppression. Notice verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now this is significant. Throughout this passage, identity is so important. This This will be oppression between the people of God those of the same identity, those of the same flesh and blood. And so amidst this financial crisis, there's no money, there's no uh, labor, there are supply chain issues, and the people of God begin to take advantage of one another, and there is a great outcry. Now that word outcry is the same word used when the people of God are in Egypt. And they're in slavery and they're in bondage. And they cry out to their God to come and save them. And that's the same kind of cry that is being heard in Jerusalem. But notice it is against their Jewish brothers. Notice verse 2. For there were those who said with our sons and our daughters, again, flesh, identity, family. They said, we are many. So let us get grain. We need more food. There's too many of us to feed that we may eat and keep alive. And so what do they do? Verse 3, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So to eat, they began to mortgage off their property. But notice who they are giving it to. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our field and our vineyard. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children, as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and vineyards. Notice this need, this this disadvantage. Folks are poor. They don't have anything to eat. And so what do they begin to do? They begin to mortgage, borrow money against their property from their Jewish brothers. Now that seems all well and good, but we see here they're not giving their property back. And one of the things that they are doing here is they're forcing even their children to be slaves. Now, if you know Israel's history, all of that is cringy. God's people weren't to be slaves. And they certainly weren't to act like slaves to one another. 
And they certainly were not to oppress one another as slaves for their own benefit. But that's actually what's going on. They're lending money and they're keeping their property as collateral and they're even accepting one another's children as slaves, human trafficking. And what we begin to see here is this oppression in the community begins to distract from the mission. They are in debt to one another, and so they begin to stop working on the wall. And as they stop working on the wall, their mission, they begin to have to work for one another. Now, this is a window into a bigger issue in Israel's identity. The world naturally and most often tends to an economy of greed, where you use the disadvantages and the needs of others for your advantage. And yet Israel's economy was to display the unconditional faithfulness of God. That's why in their laws, they, they, they weren't allowed to take advantage of the disadvantage of others. There were even laws that they had to hedge off some of their property for, for the poor or the outcast to eat from. There were even specific laws about charging interest and, and keeping property for collateral that is being disobeyed here. And then it was okay to have someone to work off a debt. You couldn't charge interest. And then every seven years in Israel, in Jerusalem, there was something called the year of Jubilee where everyone who was working for you was set free. And this was to display God's unconditional, gracious faithfulness to his people. God has rescued you from slavery. You are not to enslave one another. You are not to charge one another more than God would charge you. And their economy was set up that way. Now, I know when we get to this point, Many of you want to begin to apply this to our country and our economy. And that's one of the dangers, actually, in Nehemiah is we say Israel equals USA. Now, if we start doing that and using that hermeneutic through Nehemiah, we're going to make everybody here mad. Because some of you are going to want to build a wall, and some of you are going to want to address the issue of oppression. And yet, that's not the hermeneutic of, of Nehemiah at all. Nehemiah is concerned about God's faithfulness to his people. Who are God's, faith, who, who is, who are God's people? The church. And so the first application here is we think about this oppression that hinders mission. We got to think about in our own lives how we oppress one another and hinder the mission of Christ here as a church. And the mission to display God's faithfulness in Christ to the world, it cannot be accomplished in an economy of indebtedness and demands in the church. If we are working for each other, we're not working for Jesus. The degree to which you owe me and the degree to which I demand work from you, I am distracting from your work for Jesus and your delight in Jesus. If I am indebted to you, I'm not serving Jesus. If you are indebted to me, you're not serving Jesus. And we see how this happens in a lot of churches. 
where certain people with the money or certain uh, ministry teams with the power, they begin to take over and everyone has to serve their agenda. And you have to meet their requirements and their standards before you can move forward on mission. We also see this in a lot of leaders where their ministry is propped up and those who are suffering and those who are poor, they have to pay them. They have to give to their ministry allegiance to their vision so that they may be healthy, wealthy, and winning. We can point out all kinds of ways this happens around us, but how does it happen in your life? How are you making such demands on the people around you that you are distracting them from serving Jesus? Your demands are keeping them from delighting in the gospel. When they show up, it is your ministry, it is your program, it is your agenda, it is your needs that come first. You owe me. I am the center of the mission, the ministry, and they have to give and serve and pay you back instead of serving and delighting in Jesus. How is that going on in your life? We see this a lot of times when tradition and program and image is propped up. And we, we go out to folks who are, they, they are an infinite debt to God for their sin. They can't pay for their sin. And, and, and we may even talk to them about Jesus and share the gospel with them, but we begin to act like If you don't match our image, our version of Christianity, adhere to all of our steps and all of our programs and take on our traditions, you can't know Christ. And tradition becomes bondage and oppression. The programs of the church become bondage and oppression. And we begin to assert those things instead of the faithfulness of God in Christ, and people are distracted from the mission. But notice the text continues. Here we see faithfulness and freedom. Nehemiah steps in to free the people of God. Notice verse 6. I was very angry. And if you've been reading Nehemiah, you're like, shocker. This dude is angry every chapter. He's frustrated every chapter. And yet... If you study Nehemiah and you walk with Nehemiah, you see an example of what righteous indignation is. And you begin to see that this this righteous indignation is good. It's not wrong. It is right for you to be angry at certain things in the world. He says here, I was very angry. I was infuriated. Now remember what tempers his anger is the glory of God and the good of God's people. That is his mission. That is his objective. And when those things are hindered, he gets frustrated and he gets angry. But he's also a man of action. He is praying. He is risking. He is sacrificing. So this is good, healthy anger. But notice what he's angry at. When I heard their outcry in these words, when I began to understand what was going on with the people of God, when I began to hear that Jewish brothers were enslaving the sons and daughters of, of other Jewish brothers, the powerful, those who had money, they were beginning to use the, the sons and daughters of the poor for their own benefit and holding their property and charging interest. When I began to hear about this slavery and their outcry back to Exodus, I was infuriated. 
Notice what he did, verse 7. I took counsel with myself. Now, that's an odd phrase, and I think that's the only time it's used in the whole Bible. Now, what does it mean? I took a chill pill. I, I had to take the 24-hour rule, which is instead of saying what I want to say, I waited a whole day. That's a good rule. Use that. But I, I went off by myself, and I began to think about an appropriate plan of action. I took counsel with myself, and notice what he does. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, the powerful, those who had the money, the leaders. And I said to them, you are exacting interest. Now again, it was okay for a brother to work off some debt for you, but you could not charge interest. You could not charge more. That was actually a Gentile practice. Israel was actually allowed to charge Gentiles interest because they were used to it. But you couldn't charge a Jewish brother interest, and that's what's going on. And notice, I held a great assembly against them. And so he calls everybody in. Now remember, Nehemiah is a representative of the Persian government who is in power. And so uh, with the authority of the imperial court, he brings everybody together. And they're going to have a public trial. There is public indictment going on here before everyone. So he doesn't walk around grumbling, complaining, gossiping. He takes some time to think through it. And now he calls everybody together. And there's a public trial against those who are practicing this kind of slavery. And he said to them, As far as we are able, we have bought back our Jewish brothers. So as God allowed the people of God to return home from exile, one of the things they would do is they would go around and purchase their brothers and their sisters and other Jews from slavery, those who held them hostage. Whether it was kings, officials, or whether they were working for someone else, they would purchase them back. They would, what the word is, redeem them from their slavery. And so we, we spent a great deal of time and money and energy in freeing every Jewish brother who had been sold to the nations. But notice what you're doing. You even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And so we redeemed them, but now you've set up another form of slavery here. And you're trading your brothers and sisters with one another. That there's even opportunity for folks to show up and purchase slaves in Israel. That is scandalous. That shouldn't be going on. He confronts them. He indicts them. He shows their hypocrisy. The very essence of who they were was at stake here. They were to be free by the grace and mercy and redemption of God. And now they are holding one another in bondage. Human trafficking in Jerusalem, in Judah, that makes no sense. And so what is their response? They were silent and could not find a word to say. Silence. Why? They're guilty. And they see it. And they understand it. They've heard the, the, the biblical case they, they see clearly the hypocrisy. 
This doesn't make sense with who we are. And they cannot say a word to defend themselves. Verse 9. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Now, this word here is unholy or profane. You are profaning something. You are making something unholy. And what is it? Notice the text continues. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? What are they profaning? It is the very name of the Holy God. In holding one another in bondage, they are profaning God. That's not who God has set them up to be. And notice he says, ought you walk in the fear of the Lord? Ought you as the people of God in the world who are to reflect his name to the nations, ought you tremble at that responsibility? Ought it affect the way that you treat one another? Notice he says the taunts of the nations. The nations look in and they know your history. This group of orphan slaves in Egypt who have been redeemed. And y'all talk about that all the time. And all of your great and all your glorious kings in the way you are free before God. You flaunt your economy and the way that you handle, handle one another in your relationships before the nations. And now all of that is at stake. And the enemies of God, they sit back and laugh. Yeah, right, free people. Now they're in bondage to one another. And his point here is you are saying something about the name of God in the way that you treat one another. And God's judgment will be upon you. Think about this. As they are finishing the wall, and this is going on, one of the warnings here from Nehemiah is God will, God will allow the enemies to come in again and make you cat. If you're going to enslave one another, the enemies of God are coming and they will enslave you. But notice, Nehemiah's righteous indignation here is driven by their hypocrisy. They, they are a family of former, former orphan slaves. They're not wealthy landowners. And they're acting like hypocrites. That they should have been at least obeying the law, at least acting more consistent with God's grace in their life. And the point here is our faithfulness to one another is rooted in our identity before God. God chose to love you unconditionally. Do you understand that? That that's where the gospel begins. You have nothing to offer God. He is sufficient in and of himself. And he's also holy. And he is infinitely holy. And your sin causes you to be infinitely spiritually bankrupt. You have an infinite debt to God that you can't pay off. You owe him, and you are enslaved to that debt, and you are an orphan outside of the family of God. And what does God do for you? He sets his love upon you unconditionally because you can't pay him back, and you have nothing to offer him. It's interest-free, and there's no benefit to him. And you don't care when this debt is coming due, because you are living in and of yourself. And so he sends his son into the world, and on the cross, he pays off your debt. 
He buys you back from your sin and enslavery and bondage to, 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 to the debt that you have, this infinite debt on the cross. And he gives you his spirit where his love overflows within you. And you begin to, you begin to, to love him and he gives you this promise that is sealed in your heart forever. And you go from being an orphan, enemy, and slave to a child of God, a son with every right that Jesus has. God has been faithful to the unfaithful. And that's the height of faithfulness, right? You can't become, you can't be more faithful than that. And so the height of hypocrisy is for us to receive God's faithfulness in Christ and then turn around and demand payment from one another, to turn around and enslave one another and demand that we serve one another. That is the height of hypocrisy, and that's not who we are in Christ. And so his righteous indignation is driven by the hypocrisy of the people that he confronts here. And if the height of hypocrisy is for the unfaithful, which is us, to demand faithfulness as payment from one another, then faithfulness on my part today is to free you to be faithful. In light of what God has done for you, freeing you from your sin in Christ, Your mission here today is to walk around and free others from the bondage of sin. This means when when a brother or sister is in sin, you step into their life and you remind them of the gospel. See, a lot of times what we want to do is we want to step in and this is how you fix it and this is what you would do. And if you hadn't been doing this, then you wouldn't be in in the shape that you're in. No, you walk in and you free them by reminding them of God's faithfulness to them in Christ. I know this is a struggle, but God loves you in Christ. He has proven it. Let's trust Christ. Let's follow Christ. And I'm not leaving. I'm going to be faithful to you. You step in, and instead of enslaving them, you free them the way God has freed you from sin. When folks are suffering, you want to be a tangible agent of God's faithfulness in their life. You're on a mission at all times looking around and, and you see brothers and sisters and they're struggling to believe, is God faithful to me? They're in bondage to sin, or maybe they're just enslaved in suffering, and and they can't see anything good in their life, and yet you want to remind them of God's faithfulness. You step in and you remind them of the gospel, but then there's tangible things that you do. You give, and you serve, and you feed meals. You show up, and you clean their house. Why, Why are you here doing this? It's because in this moment, you can't see anything good You're forgetting God is faithful, and I'm going to be an agent of faithfulness in your life. I'm going to free you from that bondage. Faithfulness is freeing one another to see faithfulness. Notice verse 10, the text continues. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. And so what does Nehemiah do? He says, I'm going to be first in line in repentance. I've been allowing people to borrow money. I'm not even going to do that anymore. We don't know if he was charging interest, but Nehemiah says, I'm not doing it anymore. We're not lending out money and we're not charging interest. 
And he says, verse 11, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards and their olive orchards and their houses and what percentage of money, grain, wine and oil you have been exacting from them. He says, give it all back. He's leading them in repentance here. He says, let's turn from these practices and let's go above and beyond and give it all back. Verse 12, and they said, we will restore. There's no bickering back and forth. Yes, sir. We will restore these and require nothing from them. We'll give it all back, even the money we have made. We will do as you say. And notice what he says. And I called the priest and made them swear to do it as they promised. This man is relentless. Okay, I hear what you're saying. He brings the priest in. He says, we're going to make a covenant before God. And I want you to swear today. I want, you to, I want you before God to promise, because at the end of the day, you're saying something about the holy name of God. Verse 13, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And what he does is he takes his robe He says, you've committed to these things. This is a holy covenant. He's brought in the priest. And then Nehemiah becomes a prophet. Think about all the roles Nehemiah has had. Cupbearer, construction manager, security guard, working on the wall himself, priest. Now he's a prophet. He stands up and he shakes his robe. And the dust that was on his robe, lunch, maybe some crumbs on his robe, He flips it off. Maybe there's some lint, maybe some dandruff, flies up in the air. He says, if you do not uphold this promise, God is going to shake you out of the land again. He's going to cast you out of the land again. Anyone who does not fulfill this promise. But notice their response. And the assembly said, amen. Think about this. You get a stinging rebuke. And you had to give back everything that you've made. Yes! Praise God. It's been a great day. Great day of worship. Let's sing the doxology on the way out. Thanks for the rebuke, Nehemiah. But there's a point being proven here. They have heard the word of God. They have been struck with the fear of God. They have been confronted and they repent. And this is good. They've been reminded who they are. And that's a question in your life. When you hear the word of God, when you hear the gospel, and you're reminded who you are to be before God, and and there's things in your life that you, without a shadow of a doubt, know were off balance, and you move that back in because of the word of God, do you say, yes, thank you, God? Do do you see a, a rebuke, a stinging rebuke as God's faithfulness in your life? Or is it just kind of a nuisance? No. No, I'm going to push that away. What about when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will shall receive mercy? That's exactly what Nehemiah says to the people of God. If you can't be merciful, you're not going to receive the mercy of God. And we hear those words from the lips of Christ. When you hear those words, do you think, surely he's not talking about the grudge I've held for 15 years? Surely he's not talking about the forgiveness I've yet to offer this person in my life? 
Do you, do you see that as God's faithfulness and say, no, we got to get in line with who we are. God has been merciful to you. Be merciful to others. God has been faithful to you. Be faithful to others. We continue verse 14. Notice what Nehemiah does. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, 12 years. So the whole time I was there. So Nehemiah kind of moves from this episode of confrontation And then he says, okay, this is what I did from that point forward. Neither I nor my brothers ate food allowance. We didn't even take the allowance that we deserved for our work there. We were sent by Artaxerxes. We didn't even receive the food that we were supposed to have. The former governors who were there, they laid heavy burdens on the people. And they took from them their daily ration of 40 shekels of silver. Now, this was like a week's wage for each day. And it would have been impossible for the people to, to pay those things. But the governors before, the foreign governors, they, they weighed the people down with these things. Even their servants lorded over them. And so there was always a tax. There was always a debt. But why did Nehemiah not do this? Look at these words. Because of the fear of God. I represented the holy God of Israel. And so I wasn't going to demand from the people of God what they could not pay. Verse 16, I also persevered in the work on the wall, and we acquired no land, and all of my servants were gathered for work there. We remained focused on the wall. We remained focused on our task. Verse 17, moreover, when there were at my table 150 men, Jewish officials, besides those who came from the nations and were around us, Nehemiah is saying, I didn't receive any money, and I didn't require any money from the people. And by the way, I had a lot of people to feed. I had a lot of people who were under my care, people from other nations around my table. In verse 18, now what was repaired at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance from the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Now, what's his point there? I, I had rights to all of these things. I could have demanded all of these things. The, the people of God, they understood that they owed me these things. To do the work. I needed these things. And yet he goes above and beyond the rules and regulations for sacrifice. Instead of lending, he's giving extravagantly. Instead of demanding, he's sacrificing for the people. He doesn't play by the law. He doesn't play by the rules. He doesn't play by the precedent of others. He says, I'm going to go above and beyond what is even required. Why did he do this? Verse 19. He stops and he ends this diary entry this way. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is his heart. He's walking in the fear of the Lord. And what does that cause him to do? Work for the good of God's people. And and he's saying here, I couldn't have done more for God's people. And we've seen this with Nehemiah. Every step along the way, Nehemiah takes his power and he takes his position and he leverages it for the good of others. He is a cupbearer in Persia and he risks his life for the people of God. 
He is a governor who works night and day on the wall. He is a building manager who stands in security working night and day on the law. And here he is a leader. He is authority. He has power. And what does he do? He uses it to give above and beyond for the people of God. His whole life is above and beyond. Why? The glory of God and the good of God's people. Now think about this. Nehemiah could have just stayed in Persia and served Artaxerxes. Fine. We would have never heard about him. He could have just lived his life. But he was, seems to be a good guy who did his job well. But he is enraptured with God's glory. He is committed to the good of God's people. And so he is willing to risk, he is willing to sacrifice because of the faithfulness of God in his life. If you are living, here's the thing, if you are living according to God's faithfulness in your life, you will have a track record of constantly going above and beyond the rules and what's expected when it comes to lavishing love and faithfulness on others. That will be the standard The standard will not be, what can I get by with? Can I do just enough that that people, maybe they don't even notice me, but I don't draw attention to how selfish I am. I do just enough. If you are living to God's faithfulness to you and you are enamored with that, you will constantly be going above and beyond to display God's faithfulness to others in your faithfulness to them. I am committed to you no matter what because God is committed to me no matter what. And that is a part of who I am. The question for us here today is, are you enamored with the gospel? If you are living in the gospel, reminding yourself of the gospel This will be your life, and this will be what faithfulness looks like in your life, above and beyond. You see, Nehemiah wasn't rewarded for the work he did apart from the work of another. Our hope today is not in Nehemiah's work. Nehemiah's hope wasn't in his work at the end of the day. It's the hope in one who worked for the good of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if Jesus had just played within the rules and done what was expected when it comes to faithfulness, guess what? You would be in hell right now. You would be in hell. If Jesus says, okay, what do these people deserve and what is expected? It would be hell. But he heard our cries from oppression, of sin, and death, And he left heaven, and and the gospel says he had no place to lay his head. And he came, and he served, and he worked for us, and he had right to take from us, but he gave his life for us. And he's raised and ascended, and he's been rewarded the kingdom of God. You know what he does? It's not expected that he would turn and give us the kingdom, but that's exactly what he does. Faithfulness is giving infinitely above and beyond. And when you live there, when you breathe that in as your life, you're not looking around thinking, this, this is too much. You're looking around constantly saying, I'm not giving enough. I'm not sacrificing enough. But the reality is, God's not standing today demanding you pay off your debt. That's not what he's doing. There's another one who's already done that. 
What he is saying is delight, delight in my faithfulness and display it to one another. You see, missions is difficult in a bad economy, but not for bankrupt sinners.